Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we come uh, lifting up our sister Lori to you. She uh, right now is at home, has been walking a long, hard road of, uh, of pain and of illness, of weakness. And right now, Lord, she is um, she's in hospice. She, I imagine, wakes up in the middle of the night in pain. She's been weak. She's had worries. She's had fears. God, we, we pray for her this morning. We lift her up and ask that you would guard her heart and her mind in Christ Jesus. We pray in these days where it seems that your will has, is clear in her life. We know the future that you have because her hope is in Christ. I've heard of her talk, of her trust in Jesus only to save her. And so we, we rejoice that she gets to see the treasure of her heart, Jesus. But we also know that the valley of the shadow of death has been long and it is scary. And we don't even know what it's like to be at the point that she's at. And so we lift her up this morning, asking that you would be a tender shepherd for her in this season. And that you would be a tender shepherd for her mom and for her brother and her sister-in-law. We pray that you would be a tender shepherd for, for those who have been friends with her and her family for so long, who, who walked through this with their own grief and their own worries. God, we, we, we beg you to, uh, to be near, as you've promised you would be, but to also to be felt in this shadow of death. We pray, Lord, for those also in our church who carry hidden burdens that we don't even know about. They could be recent burdens. They could be burdens from the past. God, we pray that just as you are a tender shepherd for Lori today, I pray that you would be a tender shepherd for those that wonder where the money is going to come from, who wonder what's going to happen next in the diagnosis. We pray you would be a tender shepherd for those who see no way to heal a relationship, who have no way to deal with the grief from the years past or the rage and the bitterness over what's been done. God, we pray that you would be our tender shepherd today. We pray to you. We pray today for the church around the world, though our persecuted brothers and sisters, who because of where they were born or where you have sent them, they face persecution, imprisonment, abandonment. They've lost jobs. They're unable to get jobs. They've been thrown into prison. They've had family members killed. We pray, Lord, that you would show yourself as a God of goodness and a God of justice for our brothers and sisters in hard places around the world. God, I also pray for for the churches in our area who gather along with us this morning. We pray that you would be worshipped in spirit and in truth. We pray that your word would be declared boldly and clearly. And we pray that sinners would hear of the goodness and grace of God and repent and be saved today. We pray, Lord. We pray, most of all, I pray for our hearts. That we would hunger and thirst for you deeper than we have ever done. That we would not be satisfied with people and with pleasures and with things, that we would only be satisfied with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What if? 
That is one of the questions that unites almost everybody in my experience, is that so many of us often are asking the question, what if? It's one of the questions that I, I often get as a pastor more than any other, because so many of us go through life where everything is uncertain. So I don't know what your what if is, what that thing that makes you go, what if this happens? It could be, well, what if he stops loving me? Or what if he doesn't love me? It could be, well, what if the money runs out? It could be, if you're like me, you might have a dream about something that's really small and something really weird, and you wake up and you're like, why am I anxious about this? Why am I worried about this small thing at work? Why am I worried about this thing that's not going to take place, or not going to matter at all in a few weeks, let alone a few months? But so many of us go through life saying, it's really one of the things that's really common in America today, in our community today, is people gripped by anxiety, wondering what is the future going to hold, and what if things go bad? So I don't know what your what if is today. I want you to be thinking about that right now. What is my what if? That thing that I wake up in the middle of the night worried about. That thing that drives my anger. That thing that drives my hoarding. That thing that I wonder, well, God, do you know what you're doing here? Because today in Philippians, God hits that head on. Big or small, we all have those things that we get anxious about. And today in Philippians, God doesn't, God doesn't just give us a little, a little slogan, but He actually gives us an action plan for those moments where we wake up at 2 a.m. and we go, I don't think I can go back to sleep. It's actually that thing that we do, not just a pill to take once a week or once a day, but it is an attitude that God has given all of us because we go through the world easily controlled by worry and bitterness, trying to control things. And today in Philippians chapter 4, we are going to see what God has to say to our anxiety. And specifically, what he calls us and what he gives us in grace to do with it. So go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, here as we open your word today, I pray that you will use your word to set us free. Help us to see that this is a gift that you have given to us in all circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in Philippians chapter 4, Paul is starting to kind of try and wrap up his letter. The, the end of the letter, he just, it's almost like machine gun things where he just starts naming things. Commands, tactics, plans. This is, this is some stuff that I want to say. This is one of the reasons I love the letter is because it's like when you and I are with a friend 
Sometimes we don't need to have a reason to talk about something. We just talk about it. We just say it. We're like, oh, I wanted to mention this. Maybe you have that kind of a relationship with uh, somebody, and you can just kind of list all of the things that are going on with you, and you don't have to give a whole lot of context. Here, Paul's writing to a church that he loves, and he's like, guys, I love you. You're one of my, my pride and joy. You guys are faithful in the Lord, and I know you deal with anxiety, which I think is actually a moment of encouragement for you and I to go, oh, being anxious and struggling with anxiousness is not automatically disqualifying from God's people. That even Paul's best church, he writes to them and says, I know your temptation. Let me, and so, this is, so what he's going to tell us today, what he told the Philippian church and what he calls to you and I today is to direct our hearts to a safe place in our trials. Here, Paul is acknowledging that they go through trials, that there are things that are worries and that are hard. But he writes to the church, and he writes to us 2,000 years later, and says, there is a safe place for your heart in your trials. Direct your heart to that place. What I want to show you today is three, three ways to direct our heart in our trials. Three ways to direct our heart in our trials. First, we are called to put our joy in the Lord. Put our joy in the Lord. Verse 4 is where he starts with this kind of summary statement where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Just repeat. He's like, I don't want you guys to miss this. Rejoice is not a word, except unless it's in a song that we sing in church. It's not a word that we often use. We might use joy a little bit. But here, Paul is calling them to have something deeper than just a temporary happiness. He's calling for them to put the, the, the goodness of their life and the value of their life and the things that they most want. And he's telling them, you can in every circumstance find joy but he's calling them to not just rejoice always. He's not simply saying, find something to be joyful about at all times. He gives them something very specific. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul doesn't say, in every circumstance, that is a good thing. He says, in every circumstance, in every trial that's trying to beat the joy out of you, that's, that's trying to fill you with worry and with bitterness, trying to control your world, Paul says, in those moments too, rejoice in the Lord. And I think Paul is using in the Lord in a very specific way here. It's a, when Paul says in the Lord, he's using it as a shorthand for the the for the fact that Jesus is king over all the earth and invites us into a relationship with him through repentance and faith. He's not saying rejoice in God, the existence of a creator at all times. He's saying rejoice in the existence of a creator who would give himself for you at all times, who promises to never leave you and forsake you. Rejoice in that kind of king at all times. He's saying this term, I think the way he's using in the Lord here is he's saying the God that you have a relationship with, who gave him his very best for you to save you from your sins, to give you eternal life, has promised to never leave you or forsake you. Here in a moment, we're going to see who promises to guard your heart. Rejoice in that Lord at all times. 
so that we can say, God, I was unfairly let go from my job. But that's not my joy. You're still my joy. God, I was so mistreated when I was a child. God, I was abandoned when I was a child. He says, but God, you're going to be my joy because you promise you won't abandon me. He's saying rejoice in that Lord at all times. And so what Paul is calling to you and I, he's he's teaching us today, is that there is a safe place to put joy. That no government leader can touch. No boss can touch. No job loss or home loss can touch. A doctor's diagnosis can't touch it. Divorce can't touch it. Abandonment can't touch it. There is a safe place that our joy can be put. And then I think Paul tells us, along with this, as he's calling us to put our joy in the Lord, he's trying, I think, to teach us that our joy becomes a weapon in our lives if we put it in the Lord. If we put it in making sure that that never happens to me again, then it's unsafe. We want to make sure that we never, you never lose a job and lose your home again. It's not safe there. But if we put it in the Lord, then our joy becomes a weapon over that situation. And so being unfairly treated, being abandoned, being accused, being left alone does not, is not a safe place for our joy, but our joy can be in a safe place if we put it in the Lord. That's what he's calling us to. At almost every funeral that I've done and been to, we sing the song, It Is Well. And so likely at at one of your own family funerals or several of your own family funerals, that's a song that you've sung. And this week, I learned something about the story, the, the hymn that I didn't know. I actually didn't realize it was written in Illinois. It was written in Chicago in the 1870s, I believe. But the guy who wrote it, um, he lost his four-year-old son. And then in the Chicago fire, his family lost a lot of their money in the investments there. And then, then there was a stock market crash, so they lost even more money. And so he sent his wife and his four daughters to go and see a family friend who was a preacher who was in Europe at the time. And he said, let's try and go there and try and heal. Let's try and rest. And while their ship was sailing across the Atlantic, their ship struck another ship, and his four daughters died. And nine days later, his wife, who's the only one that survived, got, got to England, I believe it was, and sent a telegraph back to him and said, saved alone, what shall I do? And so here's a guy that has lost everything we could, like his kids alone would be the thing that would take us to our knees. Lost his money, lost everything, and he's trying to go and see his wife. And he gets on the boat, and when they're about at the spot where the shipwreck happened, the captain said, this is where your daughters died, right here. And so he went into the cabin of his ship, and he sat down and started writing this song, this poem that became the song that you and I sing in grief. This song that we sing at funerals that talks about there are sweet moments in life, but also when the sea billows roll and it's relentless and it does not let up and my children will not come back. The writer of this hymn said, I'm going to put my joy in a safe place because what else can I do? What else can I do? I'm going to put my joy in a safe place that's not in health, it's not in wealth, 
that is simply in the Lord. That's the legacy that you and I have as believers, is that we walk in a long line of believers who have to make the choice, sometimes daily, multiple times a day, God, my joy is going to have to be in you because nothing else has been safe for my heart. God, nothing else has been safe for my heart. I am going to put my joy in you. Moment by moment, day by day, I am going to put my joy in you. So some of you are in that place today where you're like, Joe, you don't even know. You don't even know what weighs on my heart. This isn't, this isn't my command to you. This is God's call to you and I, is to put our joy in a safe place, putting it in the Lord. This is, and more than just a command, this is a call of grace where God is saying, you can be safe. You can be safe. Satan promises that if you put it in money, then you'll be safe and happy. Satan promises that if you put it in controlling your world, you can be happy. And God says, Satan is lying to you. I am the only safe place for your joy. So, a few years ago, in the middle of a lot of conflict on the outside, but mostly conflict on the inside, anxiousness on my own inside, I had a counselor who was using these verses to counsel me and to encourage me. And told me to begin, he assigned me to begin listing 10 things every day to thank God for. And I've I've shared this, I know I've shared this on Sunday night before, that I did this, and I was like, what kind of Mickey Mouse counselor is this that would say, write out 10 things that you're thankful for? And I, most of the time it was things like, thank you for this cup of coffee, thank you for the ink that's in this pen, Thank you. It was just like I can't barely squeeze anything out. But over time, the, the, the Lord used me take, like having to work hard to find 10 things in my life to be thankful for. The Lord used that as a weapon in my life to say, you know what? Nobody else can touch this joy when it is found in the Lord and in his love and his care for me. Joy and listing the things that the Lord has done for me becomes, became a weapon in my heart and in my life. I hate the idea of leaving behind a legacy of my prayer journals for my kids. Emma really desperately wants me to do that. And the only thing she's ever said that's been persuasive in that is that maybe there will come a day where the kids look back and say, that season where so-and-so happened in dad's life, this was dad moment by moment saying, God, I'm struggling, but I'm going to try and put my joy in you in this moment. God is calling you and I to moment by moment in the dark valley that you're walking in today or maybe in the dark valley that you will be walking in this next year. He is saying, put your joy in a safe place and do it actively. Go and work at this to put your joy in a safe place. Second way this passage calls us to direct our heart in our trials. This verse calls us to let the Lord's nearness guide our behavior. You see, when we go through trials, if you're like me, it's easy to try and try and control the world, but it's also really easy to lash out in anger, either to to harbor the anger on the inside or to lash out in anger. And here in verse 5, knowing this temptation, this is what God says in verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
He's connecting these two ideas. Let your gentleness, maybe your translation could say forbearance. It might say your moderation or your reasonableness. The sense of this is that because you understand what's happening here, because you look at this situation in a certain way, then you're going to behave in a different way because of it. Because you understand that the Lord is near and that He's the one that's in charge, you are going to treat people with a gentleness that you would not do on your own in trials. Paul knows the pressure that the Philippians are going through. Paul himself has been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been snake bit. He's been falsely accused. He's been uh, attacked by believers in the church. He knows the pressure of life, and he says, let the Lord's nearness, the fact that that God is near, this could be used in two different ways. Let the fact that the Lord is near direct your behavior to other people. He might mean that the Lord is near, as in the Lord is coming back any day. But he also might mean the Lord is near, as in he's with you right now, and he promises to constantly be with you. In either of those senses, Paul is saying, because God is near, that should shape how you treat other people and the world that's around you. Your behavior in life should be shaped not by the trial that you're under, but by the God that is walking beside you. Let that be the thing that directs your behavior. One of the things that I have to run on myself and I think that you and I have to remind ourselves, is that we're responsible to the Lord for ourselves, not for other people. And trials begin to make us excuse how we behave. Well, they did this, or this is how hard this is, so then I can get away with this. And Paul says, no, you're responsible to the Lord. He's near And so act like the Lord is near. Act like the king of all the earth owns these people and this situation. I think this passage calls to us and says that Christian maturity looks at people as God's possession and then treats them like that. And so he says, let your reasonableness, your forbearance, let your gentleness be evident to all. Let all the people that are around you see that you believe that God is with you. I, I think that it's so this, this idea that Paul's just like interrupting our anxieties by calling to us to gentleness is it, it's it's a little strange. And it made me go this week, it made me go, why would he interrupt his thought to say, make sure that you are believing and acting as if the Lord is near, that gentleness is what God has called his people to. And Sam Alberry was writing about how this idea of gentleness goes against everything that you and I hold. Our culture doesn't say it, our families don't say it, and our hearts definitely don't say it. And this is what Sam Alberry said, explaining this idea of why gentleness is so important and why Jesus is really at the heart of it. He says, part of the wonder is that Jesus is able to combine what we so easily separate. In our experience, those who are gentlest tend to lack strength and force when it is called for, while those who are strongest tend to lack the capacity for gentleness and restraint. But Jesus exemplifies perfect gentleness and awesome strength. Nobody is crushed by mistake. 
there is never any friendly fire or collateral damage. Sam Alberry points out that Jesus is the, the, the ultimate model and source of gentleness. Not because he's weak, but because that is what strength looks like in some situations. He compares it. He compares it in that article to watching a documentary where crocodiles would easily rip wildebeest, full-grown wildebeest to pieces in moments. And yet later, they would carry their baby eggs in those same teeth without crushing them. And he, he comments that that ultimately is what God is calling his people to because we see it in Jesus, is that there are some situations where strength specifically about God, like where standing for truth is required, it looks different. But in most situations, it looks like tender care for one another. And so in our trials, Paul is calling us to let the Lord's nearness guide our behavior. Looking at the world around us and saying, God, in this trial, I am tempted to go in so many different ways. I'm tempted to treat people badly. I'm treated to try and win. I'm treated, try, I'm, I am tempted to try to get my own way. But you've promised to never leave me or forsake me. And so in this moment, God, let that guide what I do. The third way to direct our hearts in trials, this passage calls us, and says, make your cares the Lord's business. Look at verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When I'm talking to an anxious person, these, I usually read these verses and say, okay, thank you, Captain Obvious. Like, I don't want to be anxious here. What is saying, do not be anxious about anything? How is that supposed to help me, Paul? But notice that Paul is saying, look, when a situation and you're going through a trial and you are anxious, you are trying to fix this situation by going over it and rehearsing it in your mind. But then Paul says, but here is what to do instead. You see, when we go through trials, when we have something that we're anxious about, whether it's a difficult conversation this week at work, whether it's about the the what we think is going to happen to our adult kids or grandkids if they keep walking down the road that they're walking down. Whether the anxiety is about finances or about cancer, when we find ourselves in a situation that's wrong, we try to fix it by rehearsing it. And Paul says, let me tell you what God has given you to do instead. But in everything, he kind of uses three terms for it. But, by, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. He's like, you know what? You're trying to fix it by staying up in the middle of the night. And God is giving you the opportunity to come and put that on his inbox to let him take care of it. Like, present this as something for God to do. In the past, I read that verse and was like, but what if it doesn't help? What if... I put it there, and then five seconds later, that worry is back. This verse is saying, here is what to do five seconds by five seconds, every minute, every night, in the middle of the night. When I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, or 2.30, or 3, and I, that keeps coming back up, it is a constant invitation to say, okay, God, it's still your business. I keep wanting to take that back, but this is what you've given me to do. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your request to God. There are some times where this becomes 
something that we do second by second. There, if you don't worry, if, you don't, if you're not anxious, if you don't struggle with this, that's great. I am excited for you that you do not struggle with this. But for those that do, and you know who you are, you, you know, you sit there and you go, Joe, that you don't know how I, my mind goes back to this. I don't exactly know, but I do know what it's like to have to second by second say, okay, God, this is what you've called me to do again. I know you said present it to you, and I thought you meant it, present it like one time and I would be okay. But God, this is becoming a day, a moment by moment obedience. And God is inviting you to moment by moment obey in that way. He is inviting you, bring that here. When the worry comes back, you're not in charge of the temptation. You're in charge of what you do when it comes, will you bring it to me, God says. Will you make your cares my business? And then notice what he says what happens. The worries come. We take God at his word and say, God, I'm going to give it to you. And then notice the result. He says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. Something that is unbelievable to us. Things that we do not understand about the peace of God is what he describes. He says this. This is the line that I love. We'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't it good to know that God will stand guard over your mind and your heart? That, that he's, he's using a very specific word about a sentry, at the, a, a soldier standing guard. At the moment he wrote this, there was very likely a soldier or two standing there guarding him. And Paul says, when those worries come and we take God at his word and put, make our worries his business, then God's peace comes and stands guard in front of our hearts and our minds. He doesn't say you will feel as if God is standing guard. He says it will stand guard. And so it is an invitation to you and I to say, God, I need to know that you're standing guard over my heart and my mind right now. I am rehearsing moment by moment. I am afraid moment by moment. God, I need to know, I need to know that you promise to come and be with me and let your peace guard my heart. Maybe this isn't for you. Maybe it's a, a, a friend or a loved one. Maybe you have a child that is constantly racked by anxiety, worried about school, worried about the future, worried about something. This passage, this passage says that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I've begun to learn from these verses and walking the road with anxiety that, that anxiety ends up being a clue about my relationship with God. Because notice, that's what he's saying here. Don't be anxious about anything. Worries come. But it becomes an invitation to say, God, my child is sick again. And I'm so tired of it. God, what have I done wrong? God, why, why are things like this? It is an invitation for us to say, God, there is something spiritual happening here. Let me come and run to you. God, let me come and run to you. A few years ago, well, 
ever since I've been a pastor, Emma has dealt with back pain. And I, when I talk to pastor friends, everybody, um, every one of them can say, yes, my wife deals with physical pain. It's, it's like a side effect of pastors um, just being pastors as their wives pay a cost for it. And so, um, the, and it, what was funny, I don't think I've shared this here, but when we first came here, we had spent six months between pastorates and Emma's back pain was gone. And the first Sunday I preached here, Emma could hardly walk and could barely walk in the building. And so it just confirmed for me, God, this seems to be what you have for your people is just walking through pain. But there was a season where Emma was able to get some help because she went to, she'd gone to see chiropractors. She'd gone to see all these different people. Nothing would work. And so she went to uh, the doctor and the doctor said, I, I really think that what's happening right here can be addressed with uh, this physical therapist, sends Emma to this incredible physical therapist. And again, we had done a lot of stuff over the years um, to try and fix this and to try to work with this. Uh, but this physical therapist was able to say, at this moment, there are obviously many causes for back pain, but she said, at this moment, there is this one thing over here that's wrong. And if, we, if you trust me and you take the time to work on that thing that does not seem at all related to your back pain, and it doesn't seem like it's going to fix it at all, I, I feel like it was uh, some strength exercises having to do with her hip at the moment was what it was. And she was like, if, if, instead of trying to treat the back pain, I think if we work on this over here, then we can help and get you some help. And I remember specifically being like, this is crazy. We're spending weeks on this, and there is no improvement. Now, I, I believe that at times that, that can happen, but like, this lady is not helping. But I remember there was a moment. It was a few weeks in, if not a month or two in, and all of a sudden, Emma was like, it's better. It's better something is, this thing is working. Because the physical therapist knew that the pain was a symptom of something else somewhere out going on. Something else somewhere was wrong. And so if we can go and deal with that, it might not immediately make it better. But I do think it will ultimately address the issue. Because that's what's creating this series of problems. He, I'm telling you that story because here in this passage, Paul is calling to us that when we go through trials and we try to address it head on, instead the actual issue is an issue where we're dealing with God. And what we need is for him to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And so Paul doesn't give us a nice, easy band-aid. Did you, oh, here, just slap a Bible verse on it and it's going to make everything better. But Paul says, what's actually happening here is that you need to know that the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that's only going to happen as we put our joy in the Lord. It only happens as we let his nearness guide everything about our lives. It's only going to, be hap to happen as we begin to say, God, here it is, your job again. Here it is, your job again. This is your job, not mine. It's only as we begin to direct our hearts to a safe place in this way that these things actually get dealt with. And so, I appreciate Paul saying, hey, part of the normal Christian life is sometimes life is very hard. Trials come, and here is how God has given you to deal with it. Direct your heart to a safe place. But what if right now you realize that you have issues with God? 
you've been angry with God. You realize that you realize that in your treatment of people, you've taken God's place. Instead of being gentle, you have been overbearing and controlling. What if right now you realize that your actions show that you do not believe that God is near or ever will be near? What if right now your actions show that you have taken God's place and tried to control the world to provide and to please and to protect yourself? Where is the good news for you? The good news is that all of this passage points us to the words, in Christ Jesus, at the end of verse 7. That tells us that if you are in Christ, then this passage points out your needs and God's supply in Christ Jesus. You see, Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. That means if you're in Christ, it was for you. The Bible says that Jesus treated every person perfectly and yet from the cross said, God, why have you forsaken me? That was for you. Jesus prayed in the garden and again from the cross in the darkest trial that a person could face. And if you are in Christ, that is for you. So God's commands in this passage are built on the rock-solid foundation of Christ Jesus obeying in your place and giving you the power to do what you've never done before. And so this passage is good news for you if you are in Christ. But maybe you're here today and you say, Joe, what does it mean to be in Christ? You say, Joe, what does it mean to be saved? I don't, I don't want you to mistake and, and, and think, oh, this is just spiritual talk about how we can obey God and love God better. Maybe today you realize that you're guilty. You have not been joyful in the Lord. You have not loved him the way you should. And there are so many things on your conscience that stand against you. If that's you today and you say, what does it mean to be saved? How can I be saved? The Bible tells us that though our sins are as scarlet, they can be white as snow when we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus to save us. Repent is our fancy word for turning away, saying, God, I have lived my own life. I have lived my own way. I have done my own thing. But God, I know that that is not good enough for you. But the Bible tells us that when we agree with God in that way and we say, God, I will accept the free gift of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then we are transferred from the kingdom of death and darkness into the kingdom of his son. If you are saying, how can a person like me be saved? It is that simple. It is never more complex than turning from sin and trusting Jesus. You can pray in the quietness of your heart. You can grab me at the end of a service. You can reach out to me during the week. But don't put it off and think that God is just happy with believing in God. The Bible says that even the demons believe and they shudder. It is only those that agree with God, agree with God about their sin, and then accept the free gift of Jesus, that those are the ones the Bible calls in Christ and saved and having the hope, hope of heaven one day having their sins and their guilt washed away, and being given the ability to rejoice in the Lord in a way they've never done before. If that's you, that is what it means to repent of sin and trust in Jesus. Do that today. So this passage calls you, all of us today, to direct our hearts to a safe place in our trials. I want you to imagine what changes if your heart is in a safe place. Maybe right now you are suffocated by anxiety or worry. I know what that's like. 
Imagine, if that's you right now, imagine what it would feel like to be free. Imagine what it would be like if you actually believed that the God of the universe who loved you and gave himself for you promised to be near you in the middle of the night at that job you hate when the fighting is going on. Imagine, imagine what it would feel like to be secure. But more than that, I want you to imagine with me what joy that lasts would feel like. Imagine what it would be like for your heart to be in a safe place and for your joy to last and last and last. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you speak to the real us and the real things that we wrestle with and that we deal with. God, I pray that you would use your words, not my word, that you would use your word to set more people free, that you would, that you would, that you would use your word so that the peace of God would stand guard in our hearts so that your nearness would guide our behavior. In Jesus' name, amen.